Good morning. How are you? So I'm Amy Phibbs. Um, my husband Jason taught last week, and I get to teach this week, and I'm so excited. So um, just wanted to thank Pastor Paul again for the privilege and the gift of being able to teach a part of this series, Contend. Hasn't it been so much fun going through the book of Jude um, all at one time and reading and studying a book kind of verse by verse? You know, we did it with Luke, but it was long and that took a long time. So we got through this one in a month. So that's been good. Um, in week one, Pastor Paul opened Jude's book of alarm to the church with contending for the faith by teaching the faith is worth a fight from verses one through four. And last week, Jason taught contending with false teachers from verses 5 through 19, warning as Jude did, don't be believe you can't, don't believe you can't be deceived. False teachers are not just preachers. They can be teachers, authors, counselors, and in a broad sense, the culture itself is a false teacher. And like Jason said last week, sometimes no matter who we are, no matter how grounded in the faith we may have been, we can find ourselves in places of um, desperation and vulnerability and can be led astray by false teachers or at the very least by wrong teaching. I was. I have known the cruelty, the darkness, and the captivity of the lies of the enemy. But praise God, I have known the kindness and the light and the freedom of the truth. Jesus said you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And his word is truth, and he is the word. And he used the word to save my life, to save my mind, and to set me free. And that's why I love not just the God of the word, but the word of God. Psalm 119, 165 says, Abundant peace belongs to those who love your instruction. Nothing makes them stumble. I want me, I want my people, I want you to have abundant peace and to not stumble, to love God's instruction. But you cannot love what you do not know. So I want to encourage you to call you to study the Bible on your own, to call you to Bible literacy to be able to contend, to fight for the faith, to recognize false teaching, you have to know the word. And for those of you who don't already study the Bible on your own, I'm here to tell you today that you can absolutely do it on your own. It's not just for preachers. It's not for graduates of seminary. I'm neither one of those. And I pray that there is someone here today who will believe what is true, that this word is God's revelation of himself to us, that the creator chose to put down in word who he was, and by seeing who he is, we see who we are, and that this revelation, this word, is for you. You don't have to wonder or worry about what God's will is for your life, it's right here. He's revealed it to us in his word. You don't have to wonder and worry if he's speaking to you. He is right here. And I think sometimes the easy accessibility of the Bible, especially in America, that we can go and have as many copies in the, our houses as we have, um, it takes away the miracle of what this really is. This is God's living spoken word to us. 
So when I sat down to prepare the sermon, I was kind of thinking of ways to kind of introduce how to study the Bible throughout the sermon, but that it got long and twisty, and I don't want y'all to be here all day. So I'm just going to encourage you to read this little book, Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds by Jen Wilkin. And it says women, but men, just tear the cover off. It's for you. Just ignore that part. Um, it's very practical, and it's an excellent plan of how to study the Bible. And it kind of shows us some of the mistakes that we make in studying the Bible and shows us how to do it step by step, and it's, it's just excellent. So I pray that through his Spirit you will begin your journey in his Word today. So let's get on to Jude, and um, we're going to open in prayer. Father, you are good, and you do good. Teach us your statutes. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Let us be like the disciples who walked with you on the road to Emmaus. Would you open our minds so that we can understand the scriptures? And I'm going to ask you, um, congregation, if you feel like you would not mind praying, just pray for yourselves that you would hear and receive what God has for you today. And if you're also willing, if you'd pray for me, that I would teach effectively. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom to gather, to share it with each other. And we just, we submit to you and all that you're going to do here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's find Jude. It's in the back of your Bible, Revelation, then turn back to the beginning, one book, and we're in Jude 20 through 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So in the first lesson in Jude we had, Pastor Paul introduced us to the context of the book of Jude, and that's always important when you're studying the word. So we learned that Jude was written by Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who also described himself not as a half-brother, but as a servant of Christ. And it was written to the people, those called. And remember, Pastor Paul talked about how that word in the Greek meant those who had been invited and accepted the invitation of salvation. There are also those loved in God the Father and those kept for Jesus Christ. And why was Jude written? To call believers to contend for the faith because false teachers were in their community. So after verses 4 through 19, which Jason taught on last week, that describe the false prophets, Jude draws a contrast to them and his audience in verse 20, and also back up in verse 17. He reminds them and reminds us of what he told us in the beginning in verse 1. But you, beloved, as a believer, you are called, beloved, and kept. And that you here in the original Greek is singular. And that matters because Jude is teaching to a church, a group of people, but the call is to each one of us individually. 
as nice as it would be, no one else can work out for you physically. Like, I wish Ben and Sam's workouts at the Y counted for me, or like putting in Shanti's insanity and just watching Shanti counted for me. Like, it doesn't. And it works the same way with spiritual growth and spiritual work. We might help each other and encourage each other, work side by side with each other, study in community, study under great teachers, but eventually we have to do the work ourselves. And so what work is Jude calling us to? To prepare. And why? So we can rescue. So in these four verses, Jude calls us, you and me as believers, he gives us a clear instruction of how to prepare to rescue, a distinction of whom we rescue, and direction of how to rescue. So our big idea for this day, it's a rhymer, um, the call is to you, prepare and rescue. So let's look at how we prepare. There are four verbs, four action words there that we see. We build, pray, keep, and wait. Build. We build up in our most holy faith. So on what? What do we build on? You have to have a foundation. Well, in 1 Corinthians 3.11, we learn that Christ is our foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. So we build on the foundation of Christ. Well, how do we build? We build by the word. In Acts 20, 32, it says, I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. That's why Bible study is so important. That's how we build our faith. We have to know what's in his word. And do we build alone? That'd be hard building if we're building alone. We build with community. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. So we build on Christ, with the word, and with each other. When we open our Bible at some part of the day to study, when we're in our community groups during the week, we are building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Then, the next thing we need to do is pray in the Holy Spirit. And we see that same command in Ephesians 6.18 after Paul explains the armor of God. Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. So what does that mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, depending upon who you talk to, there's different views on that. And that's like a whole other sermon and a whole other teacher needs to be the one to do it. So I'm skipping past that and just going to look at the, the kind of the broad picture of it. When you look in Scripture throughout the New Testament, there is a contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. So in Romans 8, it talks about in the flesh and in the Spirit. In Galatians 5, it talks about of the flesh and by the Spirit. And so we're just going to apply that same contrast here. We should not pray in the flesh, but pray in the Spirit. So what does it look like when we pray in the flesh? So if we turn to, when we won't right now, just for time, but in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, where 
Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us how to pray because his disciples come to him and say, teach us how to pray. Well, before he tells us how to pray rightly, he points out some things that people were doing wrongly. And a lot of it had to do with their attitude of prayer. And they were approaching their prayer with pride. They were praying loudly so people could hear them pray. They were using big words so that they sounded real fancy and grand. And, you know, Jesus said, don't pray that way. So we should not pray that way. That's praying in the flesh when we have an attitude of pride in our prayer. Also, when James um, 4, 3 we talk about the motive of prayer. Praying in the flesh means you're praying with wrong motive. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So praying in the fl flesh, you pray with the wrong attitude, pride, and for the wrong reason, for yourself, basically. So praying in the spirit, we're going to pray with a right attitude. And Hebrews is very clear about the kind of attitude we should have while we pray. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We approach God with confidence, but humbly knowing that we are going to receive from him. And we pray in accordance to the will of God. It's not our motivation. It's not what we want. It's his will that we want. And we know that, going back again to the word of God. You pray the will of God by praying the word of God. There is such power in praying verses um, in your prayers because you know it is the will. You don't have to wonder. God said it right there. In 1 John 5, 14 through 15, it says, This is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. And God is so gracious, even for us as believers when we're praying, even when we don't get it right. We're assured in Romans 8, 26 through 27, that the Spirit prays for us. Jesus prays for us too. So they're praying for us. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And it goes on to talk about how the Spirit prays in accordance with the will of God. So we build ourselves up in our most holy, holy faith, and we pray in the Holy Spirit. The third thing that we do to prepare is we keep what are we keeping? We are keeping in God's love. The Greek word for keep means to attend to carefully, take care of, to guard, to keep one in the state which he is in. So what state as believers are we in? What are we guarding and protecting? Well, let's hear from Jesus himself because he tells us. You'll turn to John 15. Verse 7, 7 through 11. This is Jesus. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So as a believer, we are in God's love. There's nothing we had to do to earn ourselves to get there. We couldn't work our way there. We are in God's love because of the work that Christ has done. And that's where we are, so that's where we stay. We don't have to like get back there, like we're there. And keeping in God's love just means reminding yourself of that, believing that for yourself. And we, we do that by obeying his word. We're not worried about sinning and falling out of God's love. Romans 8, 37 through 38 tells us there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So we're not worried about that. But we operate just like Jesus said he does. He's loved by the Father, so therefore he obeys. We're loved by the Father, so therefore we obey. And why does he want us to be there? So we can bear much fruit for the Father's glory. And have joy. And lots of it. That the joy would be full in us. So we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We keep in God's love. And the last one that we do to prepare is we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So throughout the Bible, whether we like it or not, there's a lot of talk about waiting. Um, it's all in the Psalms. A lot of the Old Testament stories are about waiting. There's lots of illustrations of agriculture, of waiting for a harvest. We wait. God waits. We're waiting. And we're waiting for the mercy of Jesus that leads to eternal life. And so how do we wait? We wait with a patient expectation. In James 5, 7 through 8, it talks about the patient farmer. The farmer is waiting on that crop to come. He knows that crop's coming. The harvest is coming in, and he's just got to wait on it. We know Jesus is coming. He's coming for us, or we're going to him. One or the other, if we're believers, we're going to be in the eternal life with Jesus. So we're waiting on that. And while we wait, Titus 2.13 tells us how to wait. We wait in upright and godly living. And remember, this is in the context of Jude, with the false, the false teachers who have had all sorts of crazy living that they were trying to get others to do. So he's calling the people, live uprightly, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to prepare, we build Pray, keep, and wait. Why? Because God is sending us to rescue. So in verses 22 through 23, Jude gives a spectrum of ministry. He shows us types of people and methods of rescue. And depending upon your translation, it might kind of show two groups of people or three. It just kind of depends on where they put the punctuation. But I'm going to discuss three, and it's clearly seen in the New American Standard Version. Verses 22 and 23 says, And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So three groups, three methods. The first group 
are believers in doubt. Believers in doubt. Circumstances, your personality, other influences, there are lots of reasons why, it, why believers doubt. And it can come in the form of a lot of different questions, but usually it just kind of boils down to trust. You know, is God who he says he is, and is he going to do what he says he's going to do? Believers doubt. And I think sometimes, especially for new believers, when they come, around, come to this point of maybe a hardship or a struggle, and they start to question and wonder about this whole faith thing, I think you can fall under condemnation and fear about that. I'm telling you, believers doubt. From the newest believer to the most seasoned believer. And we see that in the Word. So in Mark 9, 23 through 25, the father comes to Jesus wanting him to heal his son. And he says, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, that, that little glimmer of hope, he knew what Jesus was doing. He knew what he was capable of. And he believed that much that Jesus could do it. But he asked for more, him to help his unbelief. John the Baptist in Luke 7. So John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, Jesus' cousin living out in the desert, eating the wild honey and locusts, calling for repentance, um, he ends up in jail. And he's wondering, he's doubting, and he sends his disciples to Jesus. Go to him and ask him, are you the one we've been waiting on? Like, is all this for real? So he's in a circumstance, and it's causing doubt. Thomas. Thomas, who had walked with Jesus for three years, seen miracle after miracle after miracle. When Jesus is resurrected, all the disciples see Jesus, but Thomas, he was not there. And they're like, Jesus is risen. And Thomas is like, um, yeah, right. Like when I see his hands and feet, yeah, okay, I'll believe then. So this range of believers, they all doubt. So how do we respond to believers in doubt? The same way Jesus did, with mercy. Jesus didn't whack, point his finger and fuss and criticize. He gave mercy. For the Father, he healed the Son. For John, he says to the people that came, the disciples that came, go back. He gives witness. Go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. He gives the word also to them. He goes, he talked about prophecies from Isaiah. That John would know because John knew the word. He gave him witness and word for Thomas. And by the way, you know, we call Thomas doubting Thomas. Jesus didn't call him that. The church called him that somewhere along the way and it stuck. That's not what Jesus called Thomas. And he gave Thomas his presence. He came into that room and said, I'm here, Thomas. Touch me right here in my wounds. And Thomas believed. And so to the believer in doubt, we show mercy. We pray. We listen to their questions. We don't rebuke or criticize. We give witness and testimony. We tell what we've seen and we've heard. We give his word. And we remind them of the truth of his presence with them. A lot of times when you're in doubt, you worry that you're, Jesus is gone. He's left you. He hasn't. He said, I will never 
leave you or forsake you. I am with you always. So you go to that believer and it's not about some experience. You just say, Jesus is here. His presence is here. You remind them of that truth. So believers in doubt, we show mercy. Then there's another group, the unbelievers. And for them, we snatch them from the fire. So the default position of all mankind since the fall in the garden is we are born sinners. We sin. And because of that, if we have not accepted Christ as our Savior, then we are condemned to eternal separation from God. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So how do we rescue unbelievers? We snatch them from the fire. And that word snatch means to seize, catch, pluck, pull, take by force. It's an urgent, active, and aggressive action. We don't just dilly-dally. Remember that video we watched in the old church? I was thinking about it today. I think it was a John Bevere video, and they're like standing by the cliff, and the people are about to walk off the cliff. Like, you don't just walk them, watch them walk off. We snatch them. But it's so interesting how we do that with grace and with love. Romans 2, 4 says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And that phrase, snatched from the fire, is in the Old Testament twice. It's in Zechariah and it's in Amos. So we're going to turn to Zechariah. So if you go to the end of your Old Testament and just go two books towards the beginning, Zechariah is right there. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Israel rebuke you. Is not this a brand or a stick plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So Judah was the high priest of Israel. And he was representative of Israel. And Israel in the Old Testament represents us as God's believers, as his chosen people. And so this picture in Zechariah shows this like paradoxical thing that happens with salvation and justification. Like there is this snatching of us. Jesus' violent death on the cross snatches us from hell. But in that snatching, there's also this gentle and kind side. What does he do to, to Joshua who's standing there dirty? He cleanses him. And he washes him, and he puts clean clothes on him. And so to the un unbeliever, we rescue them by snatching them from the fire, by sharing the gospel, this good news of salvation. We tell them about this outfit that's waiting for them, that all they have to do is just receive it and put it on. 
Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We are, as believers, the bride of Christ. So, unbeliever, we snatch them from the fire. Believer in doubt, we show mercy. The last one is a believer in sin. So as believers, we do sin. We're not perfect, even after salvation. We are being sanctified, made more like Christ. But there are times when believers choose a habitual, continual sin. They fall into that. And how do we respond to them? We respond to them with mercy, but with fear, hating the sin. So to look at it, you know, we have to think about how Jesus taught about that in Matthew 7, where he talks about, you know, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own? Get the log out of your eye, and then you can get the speck out of your brother's. Well, we need to do that. We need to look at ourselves and make sure we're not thinking we're great and everybody else is messed up. You can't see other people's speck when you got a log stuck in your eye. But don't you hate having something stuck in your eye? Like if you're the person with the speck, don't you want somebody to help you? So we have to be able to do that. We need to be reflective and think of ourselves first. You know, are we walking not in sin so that we can reach out to those who may be and help them, show them mercy? And we do that with a level of fear, not fear of the wrath of God like that, but like fear of recognizing we could fall into sin too. And so we, we recognize that. We approach them humbly. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So to the believer in sin, we, we give them mercy. But we do it without judgment of them. But we do hate the sin because sin hurts people. And we don't want to be stained by it. And we don't want them to be stained by it either. So we respond humbly and balanced. We hate the sin enough to confront it. So as believers, we are called individually to prepare to build, to pray, to keep, to wait, so we can rescue unbelievers, believers in doubt, believers in sin. And to close, let's look at James 5, 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. So you know, James and Jude are both half-brothers of Jesus. And they both have closed their book with a call about rescue. And they were the brothers of Jesus who didn't believe Jesus was Jesus. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. John 7, 5 says his brothers did not believe him. And in Mark three twenty one, they were so 
disturbed by it. They thought he was crazy, and they went to get him one night when he was out doing things. So they weren't believers. So what changed? How did the brothers of Christ go from being antagonizing unbelievers to believers? Writers of scripture, leaders in the church. In James' case, he died for the faith. He was a martyr. When 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is summarizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 7, he specifically notes that after his resurrection, Jesus came and saw the 500. And then, quote, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And isn't that interesting that Paul was inspired to include that little detail? That Jesus appeared to James. Now, we don't know about Jude, don't know if Jesus came to him too, don't know if James heard from Jesus and then ran home and told Jude, don't know if it was another believer who told Jude, but somewhere on the way, Jude heard too. Whether directly from Jesus or not, Jesus came to Jude. And so these brothers who were rescued by their brother, who was the Lord Jesus Christ, they both call us to contend for each other. And just like James and Jude, Jesus comes to you today. He's coming to you through the power of his word and his spirit. And so for you believers, I ask you, are you preparing? Will you commit to study his word, to build and pray and keep and wait so you can rescue the lost? our brothers and sisters, your children? Is there someone right now that you're thinking of, specifically God calling you to minister to them? And it might be messy and it might not be fun, but, but you know he's talking to you right now. Ask him, trust him to show you how to lead in that situation, how to reach that person. If you are a believer in doubt, let me tell you, do not have fear and shame about that. Those are lies from the enemy. Don't isolate yourself from God. He is not angry, and he is not afraid of your questions. He loves you. And preview to next week, he's got you. He's got you. Don't isolate yourself from church. Find someone you can trust. Share your struggle. Ask your questions. And so church, that means we have to be prepared. We need to be able to give the word, not our opinion. And if you don't know the answer, don't guess. Say, um, I don't know about that. Um, I'm going to study it or get back to you or find somebody who does. Don't, don't just be throwing out answers. We need to be trustworthy. We need to hold the confidence of those who come to us in struggle. And those of you who, who are doubting, there just comes a point, and I know this from experience, where you just have to choose to believe the word. Either it's what it is, true word of God, or it's not. And you just have to choose to believe it. It's not about comparing your spiritual journey to somebody else. 
It's not about some experience. It is not about what you're feeling. It is about the truth. What does the word say? And just stand right there. Fix yourself right there. And if you're a believer going astray, if you're choosing to willfully, habitually sin, and if you are, you know right now the sin you're, you know what you're doing. You know. Then in love and with mercy and no judgment of you, but with the authority of the word, hating that sin, I just say to you, stop. Like, stop. Repent. Agree with God. Turn around. Remember how he's dressed you. You are his bride. Live like that. Live in that. And if you're an unbeliever, if you've not made that decision to be a follower of Christ, to submit to him as Lord, I am so glad you're here today. And I just rejoice in the mercy and the sovereign love of God that he purposed for you to be here this morning. This is him reaching out to you. Do you have questions? It's okay. Bring him to Jesus. In John 3, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He should have known it all and not had any questions. He had a lot of questions. And he snuck out in the middle of the night and came to Jesus in the night. Did Jesus say, sorry man, I've been working all day. You should know this. You, you know my word, right? Go on home. No. He answered them and he talked to Nicodemus. That's where we get John 3, 16. That whole conversation. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus questions. Ask him. Read his word. Talk to Pastor Paul. Talk to other believers. Tim Keller says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. He has done the work to snatch you from the fire. Jesus bore every bit of sin and shame and the wrath of his righteous and holy Father on the cross of Calvary. And he died. And three days later, he rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. And Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I just say to you today, be saved. Receive the mercy of Christ that leads to eternal life. Allow him to cleanse you from your sin and to dress you in his righteousness and to be put in that place of love that you'll stay forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the power of it, for your love that's written on every page, that you reveal yourself to us, and you show us 
what you've done to bring us to you. Thank you for your spirit that is working through your word and moving on the hearts of your people and unbelievers now. You are working, and so I pray that we would all be open and receive what you were, the work you're doing, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for, for dying for us, for snatching us from the fire, for cleansing us and dressing us in your righteousness. And equip us to tell that good story and to help others know the truth of what you've done. We love you, and we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.